0: Leviticus 11, beginning at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is clean-footed and chews the cud among the animals, you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud, but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud, but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud, but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed, but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. These you may eat of all that are in the waters. Everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or the rivers that does not have fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh and you shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is is detestable to you. And these you shall detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are detestable. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the, haw- the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the cormorant, the short-eared owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe and the bat. All winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. Yet, among the winged insects that go on all fours, you may eat those that have jointed legs above their feet with which to hop on the ground. Of them you may eat the locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any kind, the grasshopper of any kind. But all other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you. And by these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening And whoever carries any part of their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Every animal that parts the hoof but is not cloven-footed or does not chew the cud is unclean to you. Everyone who touches them shall be unclean. And all that walk on their paws among the animals that go on all fours are unclean to you. Whoever touches their carcasses shall be unclean until the evening. And he who carries their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. They are unclean to you. And these are unclean to you among the swarming things that swarm on the ground. The mole rat, the mouse, the great lizard of any kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the lizard... The sand lizard and the chameleon, these are unclean to you among all that swarm. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean until the evening. And anything on which any of them falls when they are dead shall be unclean. Whether it is an article of wood or a garment or a skin or a sack, any article that is used for any purpose, it must be put into water. And it shall be unclean until the evening, then it shall be clean. And if any of them falls into, the, into any earthenware vessel, all that is in it shall be unclean, and you shall break it. Any food in it that could have been eaten, on which water comes, shall be unclean. And all drink that could be drunk from every such vessel shall be unclean. And everything on which any part of their carcass falls shall be unclean. Whether oven or stove, it shall be broken in pieces. They are unclean and shall remain unclean for you. Nevertheless, a spring or a cistern holding water shall be clean. But whoever touches a carcass in them shall be unclean." And if any part of their carcass falls upon any seed that is to be sown, it is unclean. But if water is put on the seed, and any part of their carcass falls on it, it is unclean to you. And if any animal which you may eat dies, whoever touches its carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly and whatever goes on all fours or whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground, you shall not eat for they are detestable. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean, and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. You are what you eat,
1: so they say. Eat junk food, your body becomes junk. Eat healthy food, your body becomes healthy. I can only assume that this means that if you eat superfoods, you must become... Super. It is yet to happen to me. I've had plenty of quinoa and I still cannot fly. Last I checked. What if you eat clean food? Holy food? Does that make you clean? Holy? We're now at the point in our sermon series uh, in the book of Leviticus, where the Lord gives his people regulations about what makes them ceremonially clean or unclean. And we just finished uh, chapter 10 a couple of weeks ago, where we saw uh, God's judgment on Nadab and Abihu, and the deep reminder of God's holiness. And so we now come to uh, the first five chapters, uh, uh, sorry, the first of five chapters that deal with various laws in the life of Israel that would make them either clean or unclean. As you can see on this screen there, the first being the animal laws that we have, second in Leviticus 12, purification after childbirth, thirdly in Leviticus 13 and 14, laws about lepers and leprosy. And then uh, finally, before we get to 16, in chapter 15, laws about bodily discharges. So today, we deal with food laws, or more accurately, animal and creature laws, because a good chunk of it, you may have noticed during the reading, in the middle is not about eating animals, but about avoiding dead ones. And so as we come to chapter 11, we're going to look at this through the lens of two headings. Firstly, that which defiles, and secondly, that which makes clean. Our first one will be by far longer. So let's sink our teeth into this chapter and begin with our first section, that which defiles. Now the inspiration for this heading comes from verse 43 in our chapter. It says, You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them. As we'll see through this chapter, eating unclean animals or touching their carcasses would make an Israelite ceremonially unclean. And so that's what it means to defile yourself, to make yourself unclean, which is, of course, what verse 43 says. And to become unclean didn't mean just being dirty from playing outside or or something like that. Kids, I'm sure you've had the experience, especially uh, at this time of year, with your parents telling you to have a shower or to take a bath after you've been playing outside, right? Because playing outside during the build-up means sweat and dirt building up on your body, especially under your armpits, places like that. So when the Bible uses this term in Leviticus 11 of unclean, it's not just talking about uh, being dirty. No, this is talking about a ceremonial or a ritual uncleanness, which meant the Israelite could not approach God in this state. So being unclean is not what an ancient Israelite wanted to be because it put them on the outside. It hindered them from participating in the religious and public life of Israel. We've seen examples of this in some of the offerings from previous chapters. Only ceremonially clean priests or people could eat certain offerings. And if somebody was unclean, well, they could be cut off from their people, which could mean death or exile. So making sure that God's people did not defile themselves was of very high importance. This is of far greater importance than simply showering every day. And this is probably why the Lord speaks to both Moses and Aaron in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. You might remember a couple of weeks ago, we saw in chapter 10 that the Lord spoke specifically to Aaron and him only, addressed him and not Moses. And that was the first and only time in the book of Leviticus where the Lord does that. An enormous privilege for Aaron to be addressed directly by the Lord. The reason the Lord addresses Aaron as well here in chapter 11 is probably because he is now the chief priest and the head of the priesthood. And as we saw in chapter 10, one of his and the priest's key responsibilities would be to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. That's in verse 10 of chapter 10. That's one of their primary responsibilities, to make sure that they are clear about which one is which, in which category they belong to. And so now we see that being worked out here. The Lord is instructing them on what that will look like in different areas of life. That's what chapters 11 to 15 are all about. And so as we come to these chapters, we must remember them in their context, The judgment of Nadab and Abihu has just happened. They have just been burned to death by the judgment and fire of the Lord coming from his presence. And so everyone is or should be on high alert to obey the Lord's commands rightly. For us, it's easy to come to chapter 11 and think, that, uh, think of this as just you know, a boring list of food laws that we no longer have to obey, or perhaps the latest blueprint for a healthy diet. You know, one author did this several years ago with a book titled The Maker's Diet, and he based it on a couple of principles from Leviticus 11. No, we must remember the context of this chapter, that the holiness of God and reverencing him is front and center when coming to this chapter. This was not simply a matter of preferring certain foods over others, but it was about being obedient to the Lord, lest he bring judgment on his people. We must feel and recognize the weight of what we are reading. God's holiness is the primary concern of this chapter. Verses 44 to 45 make that clear, which we will come to later. But it's also seen in the summary of this chapter, the last two verses, verses 46 to 47, which say, This is the law about beasts and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. This summarizes the whole chapter. You notice that the purpose is, in verse 47 there, to make a distinction, which is absolutely necessary to reverence the holiness of the Lord. That wording right there is the same as the wording in Leviticus 10, verse 10, which we saw before. And so Aaron and the priests, they must lead the people rightly in distinguishing between the clean And the unclean. So, what does that look like when it comes to animals? Well, let's take a look. Let me give you uh, my 40,000 foot view of this chapter. And unlike my flight from Adelaide to Melbourne last week, I do not plan on circling over this 17 times before landing where I started. But I want to give you a sense of the structure of this chapter to see how it is broken up. And so we start in verses 2 to 8 with instructions on which land animals are safe to eat and which are unclean. And then we move on in verses 9 to 12 to, to which sea animals are safe to eat and which are detestable. And then in verses 13 to 23, we then look at which flying animals are clean and which are detestable, followed by which winged insects are clean. Now that's a pretty sensible categorization. You notice that in those first three We've got land, sea, and air. That covers animals and creatures from every habitat on earth. Then in verses 24 to 40, we have instructions about carcasses. Now, kids, do any of you know what a carcass is? The remains of a dead animal. What an excellent answer. The remains of a dead animal. Yes, that's right. A dead body. Now, this is important because the Lord's instructions here only apply to touching dead animals. Touching animals that were alive was totally fine. So you could still ride a camel and it would be okay. You wouldn't be considered unclean. These instructions are all about how the bodies of certain dead animals made them ceremonially unclean. And finally, we finish the instructions with a couple more verses uh, in uh, 41 to 43 about swarming animals that cannot be eaten, followed by the key command to be holy as the Lord is holy, the purpose of it all. And then we finish with the summary. Now, it's worth asking the question, why these animals? Why is it that, that some are considered clean and others are unclean? What is it about chewing the cud that makes it Okay. Well, let's come down a little bit and take a closer look. In our first habitat, the land animals, we see God give qualities that make an animal clean to eat. Verse 3 gives us those. Now, kids, I want you to count how many qualities an animal must have to be suitable for eating. I put them in bold on the screen uh, to help you if you like. So verse 3 says, Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and... Choose the cud among the animals you may eat. How many do you count? Three. That's right. Three. So in order for a land animal to be clean to eat, it must be all of these things. It must part the hoof, so not just be one foot or one hoot. Cloven-footed. Do you know what? I don't actually really know what that means. Some kind of cloven. Yeah shorter preparation time this week and choose the cud in the way that it eats it must be all of these the words separating these qualities is not or but and meaning it must be all of them it can't just have one of the three or two of the three And so in the next four verses, the Lord gives examples of animals that might have one or two of these, but not all of them, making them unclean. So the camel, the rock badger, the hare, and the pig, they all get one or two of these three, but not all three. And that's why they are unclean. So when it comes to land animals that are clean, this is what it must be moving on to the, the next category, the sea animals, there was only one quality that qualified them, which was they needed to have fins and scales. That's right. They needed to have fins and scales. So octopus salad is off the menu, as well as oysters, along with the classic Aussie prawn on the barbie. They don't have fins. And notice here in verse 10 that these uh, unclean marine animals uh, are are called detestable. They're described as detestable. That sense is stronger than simply being unclean. They are to be actively disliked as a source of food. There's a strong sense of avoiding these. And the description is the same for the winged animals and insects. They're to be detestable. And interestingly, when it comes to the birds, uh, these aren't, there aren't qualities to look out for, but just a list. There's a long list of birds there, as you see in verses 13 to 19, of ones that they were not allowed to eat. I'm not sure why, but that is how the Lord commanded them. So everything outside of this list was fair game. Now personally, I don't think I've eaten any of those birds, so I'm not really sure what they would be like anyway. Now, the common trait in almost all of these birds is that they perhaps were, were, were carnivores, meaning they ate meat, which perhaps gives some explanation as to why they're on the list if they're eating other dead animals. That, that could be one of the reasons. Now, after the winged animals, we have the winged insects. And, uh, I mean, kids, have any of you eaten an insect before? I mean, intentionally, not like a fly flew into your mouth while you were riding your bike. No? Never? Never? You know, apparently, we eat like seven spiders in our sleep over the course of our lifetime. I am sure that is a stat that is made up. How do you even study that? All right. But you see, for us in our culture, this, this idea of eating insects is probably pretty gross. Nobody here uh, tends to do that. It's, it, it's strange to us. But it wasn't so strange for this time. And it is indeed not even that strange in other parts of the world today. And when I was younger, I had the opportunity to try cricket in the Philippines. Not the game, but the insect. My uncle was snacking on a bowl of them and he offered some to me. Sadly, I refused in my foolishness. But if I was offered them in ancient Israel, would I have been allowed to eat them? Well, let's find out. Verse 20 says, all winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you kids, I might need your help again. Can any of you think of a winged insect that has four legs? Um, Adults, can anyone think of a winged insect that has four legs? A cockroach, don't think that has four legs. I think it might have more. So how how many legs do insects usually have? Six. That's right. So why then does it say winged insects that go on all fours? That's interesting, isn't it? Some people might point to this and say, oh, see, the Bible's wrong. No such insect exists. Well, no, the the phrase to go on all fours is not trying to tell us that the insect only has four legs. It's a phrase that means to crawl rather than to stand upright. And so that means they weren't allowed to eat insects uh, like flies and bees and moths, that sort of thing. Now, I'm not sure how many of those that they would have wanted to eat anyway, but there is an exception on insects that they can eat. Verse 21, it says that insects that have jointed legs above their feet, meaning that they can hop on the ground. And verse 22 t- gives us examples of which ones they are. Sorry. Are uh, there the locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any kind, and the grasshopper? So if I'd been offered a bowl of crickets in ancient Israel, that would have been acceptable. Because they have jointed legs above the feet. And there is actually an example uh, in the Bible of somebody who ate locusts. Kids, can anyone think of who that is? John the Baptist, that's right. Locusts and wild honey. So John the Baptist was a good Jewish man and stuck to the clean insects that he was allowed to eat. There's one more category of creatures considered unclean for eating, which we'll get to later. But for now, it's worth us pausing for a moment. As I mentioned earlier, as far as I'm aware, no one in our church is obeying these food laws today, thinking that they apply to us. And we will get to the reason for that later. But are we as concerned about how we eat and drink to the glory of God? That is a question that we ought to answer. As I said, here in this chapter, front and centre in the mind of every Israelite hearing this is the fact that the Lord is holy and his people must be holy. That applies even to the food they eat and the way they interact with animals. Brothers and sisters, do we consider what we eat and the way we eat it and the heart from which we eat it as showing that we are set apart for the Lord? consecrated to him? Does the way we eat and drink demonstrate our consecration? Or have we been sucked into the MasterChef way of thinking that the primary purpose of food is to serve our taste buds and our appetites? Having been consecrated in Christ, we recognize that our obedience and good works are not what save us but our pursuit of faithful obedience in what we eat and drink remains a marker of our consecration. One commentator put it like this, the Old Testament regularly uses the language of ritual purity and impurity to describe the moral purity the Israelites are to have and the moral impurity they are to avoid. This suggests that laws on ritual purity and impurity were to provide the Israelites with a constant reminder, "Just as you seek ritual purity in all of life, so do likewise in terms of moral purity." You see, you see what he's saying there? The language of this ceremonial purity is, is used in the rest of the Old Testament to describe a heart and life. That is living for the Lord, seeking to be obedient to him in all areas. And as Christians, seeking to do that, seeking moral purity continues in the new covenant. That remains our pursuit as well. We do that today. And so what does that look like if we don't have to obey the laws of Leviticus 11? Well, firstly, we must recognize that eating and drinking is still an act of worship and obedience to God. We do all things for him. So while nothing is to be rejected if received with thanksgiving, as Paul tells Timothy in his first letter, the Bible has other things to say about what we eat and drink. One of those is that it is clear in Scripture that to be a glutton or a drunkard is sin. And so excessive consumption does not honour God or the temple bodies that He has given us. That's a very uh, straightforward application of how we eat and drink to the glory of God. Our relationship with food and drink does not have no boundaries. Another important way that we follow God in what we eat and drink is in considering others. Paul tells the Corinthian church that we should take care not to eat food that will cause our brothers and sisters to stumble in their conscience. Now, to be clear, uh, in, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 8, the food itself does not commend us to God one way or the other. So eating halal or kosher food does not alter your spiritual standing with God. But if your conscience finds that difficult, perhaps because you've been saved out of Judaism or Islam, then obey your conscience as you continue to grapple with it. And for those of us who don't have a problem with that in our conscience, we must consider others first. We love our neighbors, especially Christian brothers and sisters, by abstaining from eating or drinking things that would wound their conscience. If I had a brother or sister who believed it was wrong to have a halal snack pack, then I would not go and order one right in front of them. That would not be loving. That is basically a summary of 1 Corinthians chapter 8 to 10. And in these cases, our faithful obedience to the Lord is demonstrated by our love for others. Our pursuit of holiness looks like loving our neighbour as we love ourselves. And that means eating and drinking with thoughtful consideration of how it may affect those around us. And choosing not to do it making the sacrifice ourselves if it will hinder their faith. I think one of the best applications of this and one that is extremely appropriate in our culture is alcohol. So many people have either struggled with excessive alcohol use or have been significantly impacted by it. And so while we as Christians have freedom to drink it, we ought to be careful about our witness and especially around those whom we know wrestle greatly with this. That, brothers and sisters, is one way that you may eat and drink to the glory of God. The same would be true for those who have have had a difficult relationship with food. And so even though we no longer need to eat the Leviticus 11 way, we must still eat or drink to the glory of God. And that is, of course, how First Corinthians chapter 10 finishes. One of my favourite verses. Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Well, let's return now to our passage and the rules for touching and carrying carcasses. As you can imagine, with thousands of people and likely thousands of animals traveling with them, you're bound to have some animals die. And this for reasons other than being offered up at the tabernacle. And to be in contact with death made one unclean. That's something that we have already seen in Leviticus. And that's likely because God is the source of all life and death, is the result of the curse of sin. And so right through this next set of verses, we have instructions on which animal carcasses make them unclean and what to do in response. Now usually the response is that they're unclean until the evening and they might have to go and wash their clothes and that's it. So they have to be careful while they're unclean. Incredibly, we see in verse thirty-two that if a carcass touches anything like wood or clothing or a skin or a sack, then it becomes unclean and has to be washed. Or, as in verse thirty-three, if it uh, if it falls into a clay pot, an earthenware vessel, it has to be smashed if that sounds familiar to you, that's because uh, there's a similar instruction given in Leviticus 6, verse 28, where the same thing has to occur. It needs to be broken. And that's most likely because uh, an earthenware vessel is is porous. And so it would be just impossible to actually get the the blood or or the things that it has touched out of it. And so you just cannot use it again. And so do you get a sense from these verses of how the uncleanness of death spreads and can be passed from one thing to the next. It's like a, a fairly morbid version of the game Tip. An un, a dead carcass passes its, its, its uncleanness onto the thing it touches. I think this captures the very nature of sin and death. The fall has filled all of creation and spread through all of creation. As Paul would say in Romans 5 therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, this this regulation that we see in Leviticus 11, the instructions here of dead carcasses, is a constant reminder of this truth and the ever-spreading uncleanness of death. In our world today, people spend millions and billions trying to avoid death, trying to cleanse themselves of its effect, trying to hack its tendrils that claw at us. Well, there is only one way to escape its deadly grip. We'll come to that later. This section finishes in verse 39 with the instruction that not even animals that are considered clean, so the ones that would pass the test, uh, they're they're not clean if they die. Their carcasses still uh, cause uncleanness. Can you hear? The message is loud and clear. Dead animals will make you and your things unclean. Be aware of that and respond rightly. Don't be casual or flippant about it. That is what the Lord is telling his people. And then we finish this with the final set of detestable creatures in verse 41. Every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. swarming ground creatures are not to be eaten. Now the sense of the word swarming creatures here is that of those that multiply quickly. Genesis 1.20 gives us this idea, let waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, things that, that multiply quickly. Some families in our church may be described as swarming. Now, in one sense, this is a bit of a summary of the ground creatures mentioned above, but it does so uh, sorry, But it does also add some new descriptions of, of animals that are not to be eaten, that are to be considered unclean. So things like rats, uh, snakes, centipedes, worms, those are detestable. The Israelites are to stay away from them. And now that we've had a bit of a closer look at the kinds of animals acceptable for eating, now that we've considered what Leviticus 11 teaches and tells us about those animals, I ask the question again, why are some animals clean and others unclean? I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. The reality is this has been a topic of discussion for many years and despite the brightest minds trying to find some kind of logic that shows or connects why different animals are clean or unclean, there doesn't seem to be a satisfactory answer. Also, one example, for perhaps you've heard, I've heard other people say this, that, that uh, they suggest that God separates these animals for health reasons. So they will say, you know, the, the, the pig and the sheep, and uh, they're, they're healthier than eating pig. Or a camel, or horse. I might claim perhaps that that locusts are more nutritious than flies. Now the problem with that explanation is that it's only partially true at best. Uh, There are risks with all meat, depending on how it is prepared, and there are different health benefits and drawbacks depending on the food. And so, so that explanation, if if it has any application, is is only pretty uh, minor. No, it's quite clear that the, the primary logic of separating these animals was, was not about health. And, and so the, the, the logic of, of which animals and why, I mean, you can think about that for many years if you'd like to. But the most important thing to grasp, even if we never find out until glory, is not the logic, but the purpose, the reason, the why behind the Lord is telling the Israelites to separate clean and unclean animals. And he makes this extremely clear in verse 44. Let's read. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Notice the connecting words that show the purpose of these food laws is right here. This is the center of, of the chapter. For I am the Lord. Therefore, for I am holy. For I am the Lord. Therefore, be holy. For I am holy. See, this is the holy God, the Lord who saves them out of slavery in Egypt. It is this God, Yahweh, the holy one who commands his people to be holy holy. And this gets at the heart of the reason. The food laws set apart the Israelites. They mark them as holy as the Lord is holy. They are to be different from any other people on the planet. They are, as the Bible puts it, consecrated, set apart. But what made them holy? Did they become holy by eating holy food? And how then do we become holy? Well, that brings us to our second heading and section. That which makes holy. The book of Leviticus talks about holiness a lot. And it is concerned with God's people being holy. The Lord is holy. His people must be holy. They must be consecrated and set apart just as He is set apart and there is no one like Him. Those commands are given for them to obey. But ultimately, the people of Israel were not welcomed into God's presence because of their perfect obedience to God's law. After all, they failed miserably at that. The Apostle Peter says as much in a passage that we'll look at shortly. They received the judgment for their disobedience centuries down the track when the nation was defeated and exiled. God's judgment fell upon them for their inability to keep the law. And that was carried out according to the old covenant. So no, it was not their ability to eat clean food and avoid carcasses that enabled them to enter God's presence. That came on the basis of God's mercy and His gracious atonement. That is what made it possible. And so it is today with all who live under the new covenant in Christ. By His grace, we enter And yet, Jesus still charges us with the same command. In Matthew 5.48, he repeats Leviticus 11.45, almost word for word. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here the emphasis is on doing what is right, which is an aspect of being holy. So Jesus commands his followers to still pursue the perfection of our Lord. As I mentioned, ceremonial purity pointed to moral purity. And so we continue to pursue moral purity as Christ's followers by his grace. We continue to pursue faithful obedience to the Lord in all things, giving glory to him in everything in our life. But why don't we pursue it by obeying Leviticus 11 today? That's an important question. There are many reasons for this given in the Bible, but the most straightforward answer is in Mark 7. Feel free to turn there in your Bibles if you'd like to. Jesus has just rebuked the Pharisees and scribes for rejecting God's commandments in order to establish their own man-made traditions. And he goes on to talk about food laws. Let's read from verse 14. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and they defile a person. You hear what Jesus is saying there? He's saying, well, the, the, the things we eat are not what make us defiled. It is from what proceeds from the heart. And in this, as you saw in verse 19, it says, Thus he declared all foods clean. And so if somebody ever tries to tell you that we should obey the food laws of Leviticus 11, now ask them about Mark 7:19. What do you do with that? Mark adds this little note to show that Jesus' followers are no longer bound to the food laws of ancient Israel. Now, of course, there's more in the Bible about this than just this passage and verse, which speaks very clearly about it. In Acts chapter 10, the Lord gives the apostle Peter a vision. He sees a sheet with all kinds of animals on it. And by that, we, he means all kinds of animals that he, as a good Jewish man, was not allowed to eat because they were animals that Leviticus 11 prohibited. And God gave him a command. What did he say? Peter, get up, kill and eat. So Peter is torn because you know, he's, he's never eaten such animals. He's always been faithful to the food laws of Leviticus 11. But God says this to him in verse 15. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. You hear the language of Leviticus 11 there? God has given Peter authority to eat any kind of animal in saying this. Now Did he go and enjoy a steak after that? I, don't, I mean, a, uh, some, you know, some ham, Christmas ham or something? I don't know. Now, I don't want to take these verses out of context, right? Chapter 10 of of Acts, the, the purpose of this vision is to make it clear to Peter that Gentiles are now welcome into the kingdom of God. That's the whole point of the vision. And this is a key turning point in the life of the church, But you must understand that in order to welcome Gentiles into the church, in order for this to actually happen, they had to then ask the question of whether the new covenant in Christ meant Gentiles should follow Jewish law or not. And so yes, the the vision is all about welcoming Gentiles, but now the question is, well, if that's the case, do they have to be circumcised? Do they need to uh, obey the food laws, the animal laws that we see in Leviticus 11? Now God is telling Peter in this that the answer is a pig-sized no. They don't. The Jewish food laws and other ceremonial purity laws are no longer a part of the covenant in Jesus. And that's why Mark can add that little editorial note in chapter 7, saying that Jesus declared all things are clean. The apostles in the early church realized, being led by the Holy Spirit, that the laws which applied specifically to the nation of Israel under the old covenant were no longer part of God's covenant with his church in Christ. Peter makes this even clearer when he faces the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. At that council they were debating whether new Gentile believers needed to be circumcised or not, yet another law. So, listen to Peter's words here from Acts 15. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. That's what he did in Acts chapter 10. He preached the gospel to Cornelius. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Here again, that that ritual language, and it being applied to the spiritual reality and truth. Now, therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? You hear that? You hear what he's saying? Israel was not able to to perfectly obey the law. And so... He's saying we we ought not place that yoke which is now no longer required on the yoke of our now Gentile brothers and sisters. He finishes by saying, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Just as they will. Can you hear how radically different that sounds? Can you imagine being a Jew coming from uh, 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 memorizing the book of Leviticus, knowing the ceremonial purity laws, knowing the things that you are meant to do, and the various other laws that had been part of the culture by the time we got to this century, and hearing him say that? Peter, you're just saying that Gentiles who don't obey all of these laws that we have can suddenly now just be welcomed into the new covenant in Jesus? What a radical statement. One is not saved by their good works, but by the grace of the Lord Jesus. The yoke of the law, which their fathers were not able to bear, is no longer a yoke that needs to be put on the necks of believers in Christ. They are saved by grace, Just like us. Friends, this is the key difference between the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and every other message out there. This is what makes Christianity stand out from the crowd. The Bible shows us in its unfolding revelation over a span of thousands of years and through the history of God's chosen people, Israel, right up to the climax of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that in order for us to be holy as he is holy, it can only happen as a work of God's grace in Jesus, in Christ Perhaps you're here this morning and you wonder how you could possibly be perfect as God is perfect. Are you in good company? God's church is made up of people who recognize that we cannot in our own strength be perfect as God is perfect. That we cannot in our own strength be holy as he is holy. That our hearts naturally pour forth the wickedness uh, and, the, and the sin and the things that Jesus talked about in, in Mark 7. And that we desperately need a new heart in order to be clean. We recognize that as much as we try, our consecration and our holiness will never match his in our own strength. And that is why we need a savior. Jesus, the very God-man himself, came and dwelt among humanity. He perfectly obeyed God's law to the letter. He perfectly obeyed it because of his perfect and holy heart. His life was perfectly consecrated to the Lord and he went to the cross as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Friends, there is only one way to be able to stand before God and not receive his judgment. There is only one way to stop death Entangling and consuming us finally, once and for all. There's only one way to receive a new heart so that what flows out of it by God's grace is not all evil. It is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by turning from our sin and trusting in His perfect sacrifice and receiving his holiness in exchange for our sinfulness. For all of us Gentiles who don't obey the animal laws and don't have to, that is how our salvation comes. That is where true and eternal life comes from. We don't eat our salvation. We don't eat eternal life. We're not made holy by avoiding prawns and only eating fish. We're not welcomed into God's presence because we picked up a dead bird with tongs instead of our hands. In order to be holy as the Lord is holy, we must put on Christ's holiness. And we do so by faith. You are not what you eat, but whom you put your trust in. Will you trust him today? Let's pray. O Lord, may we feed on your word and may our hearts sing at the hearing and meditating of your grace. Father, as we consider your word and how it finds its fulfillment in Christ, may it lift up our hearts to greater love and worship of you so that we might with joy eat and drink and do everything for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.